be back in the book of Genesis today, Genesis chapter 16, and I will begin in verse 7. And as you are turning there, I just want to say again, thank you, Robert, for manning the helm last week. That um, is a Herculean task when that's not what you do week in and week out, and it is such a comfort to know the capable hands that we were left in. And so I am so, so grateful for that and for you. Genesis 16, I will begin in verse 7, and then we will complete the chapter. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Ab Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. To Abram, the word of the Lord. Our Lord and our God, again, we thank you for your holy word, and it's always precious, but how precious is it to us today that we find you as El Roy, the, the God who sees me. And so we thank you that this is who you are for us in Christ amongst a thousand other things. And Holy Spirit, we would ask now that you would apply this word to us in very specific ways, that we would not leave unchanged, but we would leave changed, more conformed to the image of of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, and amen. So several decades ago, there was an experiment run called the Still Face Experiment. And some of you maybe have seen this, especially if you've been in any psychology class, this is often shown. And it was a very simple but a very profound experiment. Essentially, there was a child, a baby in a high chair, and a mother engaging the baby, and the baby was laughing, and the mother was cooing back, and it was a, all a happy interaction. And then the mother goes like this, and turns back, and is deadpan, and remains deadpan, and then the child is trying to get the mother's attention, and then starts to get a little uncomfortable, and when the mother is not changing at all, and then starts to really do some big expressions to try to get a response and the mother's not responding and then the baby just falls apart 
and just starts sobbing. And then, of course, quickly the mother resumed her standard human responses and everything was fine. But it was a powerful picture of the innate need we have to connect and how greatly disturbing it, us, it is for us when, when the one who is tasked with protecting us is, is not connecting, we are not connected to them. And this experiment helps us understand, in a certain sense, the power of what the gospel accomplishes. Because our sin, as we learned in our Sunday school this morning, our, our sin separates us from God our Father, from our Creator. Sin breaks fellowship. We feel it immediately when we sin against even someone in our family. It breaks fellowship. And, and disconnection from our Creator leads to all manners of unraveling in the human. Moral unraveling, relational unraveling, psychological unraveling when the face of our Creator is no longer fixed on us in delight because of our sin. But in Christ, we are clothed in Christ and in his righteousness. And so, and don't miss this, in the eyes of God Almighty, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ to him now. And in Christ, the divine smile returns upon you, and there is now never a moment when his face is not fixed on you in love and, and fixed on you with a father's intention to do all that is best for their children. And in our text today, the scriptures reveals a name for the Lord that anchors this specific gospel comfort for us. See, all throughout the Old Testament, God reveals different names for himself, different things he is for us as our God. For instance, there's Jehovah Ra, the, the Lord my shepherd. And there's Jehovah Rapha, the, the Lord that heals. And there's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide. And there's El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. And there's, list could go on and on. In Christ, God is all of these things for us now. But today we get another name for God, and it's, interestingly, the only place in Scripture that we get it, and the only place in Scripture where a human attributes a name to God that he clearly is, is okay with here. And that name is El Roy, the God who sees me. And it, it is my prayer, and has been my prayer, that the, the marvel of this, and the incredible comfort that this is for us would, would land deeper on us individually and collectively today as a church as we get into the text. But first, quick recap, because we really are continuing on mid-scene from a couple weeks ago. You'll recall that Sarai, having grown restless after not having a child for a decade after one was promised, convinces Abram to, to try and gain an heir for him the way the pagans do by sleeping with her servant, and then adopting the kid. And so Abram, rather than submitting in faith to God's timing, he submits to his wife's pleading, and, and he does so. And Hagar gets pregnant, and then not surprisingly, this sinful plan brings about great conflict and great hardship, and Hagar starts to flaunt her pregnancy to Sarai. Sarai becomes unglued because of this, and we left last time with verse 6, which says... 
Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. So Hagar fled from her. And so with that, we'll jump into the text itself with a summary before drilling down into some observations. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And so this verse is, is bursting with significance in multiple ways. First of all, Shore is en route back to Egypt, which is where Hagar is from. And so in her frustration and perhaps in her fear, she is just abandoning this whole Abram project and heading back home. She's done with Sarai. She is going to return to her former life and presumably to her former gods there in Egypt. However, we also find Hagar in the wilderness. And of course, that that is meant literally in the text. She is in a wilderness. But the wilderness in Scripture is also a very significant motif. The wilderness is a place of trial and transformation for the people of God. The wilderness is a place where the Lord performs deep soul work on his people in a way that couldn't happen Elsewhere, in Scripture, you don't leave the wilderness the same person that you entered the wilderness, which is obviously seen most significantly in Israel's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And, and here we have Hagar in the wilderness, which means we should expect as readers who know our Bibles that she's perfectly positioned for the Lord to do something transformative in her. And we see that we are queued up right into that at the very beginning of the text, as it begins with, the angel of the Lord found her. So though Hagar thought that she was fleeing, she thought that she was alone in the wilderness, she wasn't hiding from God. He finds her in the wilderness by a well. And so this is almost like the Old Testament's version of the woman at the well, perhaps. And note, and you'll see that this has been a repeating theme in this section, note that the Lord comes to her as the angel of the Lord. And this is significant. This is the first time that we encounter the angel of the Lord, though this becomes a popular personage throughout the rest of the text, but it's worth a quick tangent. Because the angel of the Lord really is presented to us as a mysterious figure. And it's mysterious for, for this reason. Sometimes the angel of the Lord presents as the Lord himself. It is literally Yahweh speaking when the angel of the Lord speaks. However, that's not always the case. Sometimes the angel of the Lord refers to Yahweh in the third person as a distinct entity from the angel. And this is curious and and especially so in this verse, because we have both instances of this happening. See, in, in verse 10, the angel promises Hagar blessing as if it's Yahweh speaking himself. I will bless you. I will make you a multitude. I will do this, the angel says. 
And yet in verse 11, the angel speaks of Yahweh in the third person. It says, because the Lord has listened to you, not because I have listened to you or heard you. Now this raises the question, well, who could speak as the Lord himself, but also make reference to the Lord as if somehow different than the Lord himself? And of course, there's one clear answer when we consider Scripture in its entirety, namely the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 10, I and the Father, two distinct, are one. And so this has led many commentators to believe that when we encounter the angel of the Lord, we are actually experiencing what theologians call a Christophany, a, a, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity before the incarnation. And this is the view that I, I tend to lean towards, which will make this encounter not just the original woman at the well, but the original Jesus and the woman at the well before he was Jesus of Nazareth. And so we don't have space to pursue that further, but I, I want to give you a category for that first because I think it richens this text for us, but also as you read the scriptures, I want you to have that category tucked in the back of your mind. So moving on. So the angel of the Lord finds Hagar and, and he engages her and he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai. And so that's kind of, I think, perhaps a, a roundabout way of calling out her rebellion. But he doesn't lay it on too thick. Rather, instead, he goes on to present before her a searching question. He asks, where have you come from? And where are you going? Which seems almost like an invitation for Hagar to to stop and collect herself and to take the emotion out of the experience, perhaps a little, and to take inventory of the situation. Consider carefully, Hagar, what you're doing right now. And what she was doing was not just fleeing Sarai, but Hagar was fleeing the safety of the covenant community of God. Hagar was putting herself outside of the people of promise by fleeing, which would have been an awful thing to do. But emotions are a powerful thing, and, and they can cloud our judgment and cause us to make unwise, rash decisions that have consequences that we haven't completely thought through. And so the Lord calls her to really consider what you're doing. Where have you come from? And, and where are you actually going to now and and Hagar responds honestly she says I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai and so she's honest which is a really good sign for what's to come and and it's at this point that the Lord calls her out of her rebellion and specifically into repentance the Lord says return to and submit to Sarai and so the Lord calls us to do hard things because this would have been a hard thing for Sarai to do. Remember, or I'm sorry, for Hagar to do so. Sarai was not an easy mistress to 
submit to. She had treated her harshly. This would have required great faith to obey. And yet the Lord called her to it. Now, he didn't owe her any explanation or or any promise. He could have just demanded obedience of her. And yet, in his mercy, he gives her one. As we love to say at Pilgrim Hill, there is always blessing on the other side of obedience. There is always blessing on the other side of obedience, even when it's hard and especially when it's hard. And, And so it will be for Hagar the angel of the Lord reveals. He tells her that that she's going to be the mother of a great multitude and and that, in fact, she's already pregnant with a son. And this son already has a name. His name is to be Ishmael because that means God hears. And this son will stand before Hagar for all her days as a living memorial that her God is the God of God who hears her, which is going to be very important for Hagar to have in this story because it's not going to get easier for her. And yet, even as the Lord makes this great promise, there are perhaps some storm clouds that seem to form on the horizon concerning Ishmael. Apparently, Hagar's propensity for conflict is going to be a gene that Ishmael inherits because it says he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. And it's essentially going to be Ishmael against the world and the world against Ishmael. This will be a man of conflict, which, of course, we see playing out in the upcoming chapters as early as as Genesis 21. Even interestingly, I, I think it's Genesis 37 when Joseph is sold to slave traders on his way to Egypt, it's the Ishmaelites who buy him and who take him into slavery. And that's, that's perplexing in context here because Abram's heir is meant to be a blessing to all nations. This is why the whole plan was concocted, so he could get an heir that would fulfill the promise. So, we must ask, is this truly the fulfillment of the promise God made in Genesis 12? Well, pursuing that thread is really beyond the scope of this text for today. We will get there. Because for now, in the text, in context, the the main point God is making is that Hagar has been heard in her affliction and that the Lord is working it for her good through it. And as this washes over Hagar, she she bursts forth with that wonderful name. El Roy, I have seen El Roy. You are a God of seeing. And then she goes on to say, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. And as she is refreshed with this proverbial wilderness water, as it were, she names that well, Beer Lahoi Roy, which literally means the well of him that lives and sees me. And then the text implies that that she was obedient and she returned and she had Ishmael. And we see that Abram receives this child as his heir, as his son, because it says that she bore to Abram and Abram is the one who names the son. So this is doubly, Abram is thinking, this is my heir. I am receiving this as my 
son. So the promise is going forward. Abram has got his heir now. Or does he? Well, next week we will see the plot thicken here as the Lord answers that question in a way that surprises everyone, including Abram. But I want to transition now. I want to transition and really hone in on two main observations for us that we can take away from this text. Number one, we cannot outrun the gaze of God. We cannot outrun the gaze of God. One of the most powerful and precious things we see in this text is God's active omniscience. Again, Hagar could flee from Sarai, but she could not outrun the gaze of God. The text says, almost ironically, that the angel of the Lord found her in the wilderness. But what is true is he never lost track of her. He was with her every step of the way. And and here we see the Lord's pursuit of his people. Our God does not just see you from a distance. The Lord doesn't have to dial in a telescope to get an update on how things are going for you. No, he is the God who is entirely transcendent, which means beyond the cosmos, the sun is small to God, and he is the God who is entirely imminent, close, completely dialed in, near. He knew where Hagar was. How? Because he's transcendent and he sees everything. And he knew how she was. How? Because he's imminent. And he knew her. He knew her better than she knew herself. When he asked her where she was from and where she was going, this was not because he needed to information gather. That was for Hagar's sake to be confronted with what was going on the lord sees her he knows her he is not put off by her anxiety or her sin or any of it he moves towards her in her affliction with the intention to bless and there's one verse in scripture that captures both of these aspects of our god both his transcendence and his imminence i think perhaps more beautifully than any other. Mark it down. It's, it's Isaiah 57, 15. This is a beautiful text. It says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up and who inhabits eternity. That's a fantastic definition for transcendence. The one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So now this God who inhabits eternity is about to speak. And he says, I dwell in the high and holy place. That's the one place I dwell, but I dwell one other place also. I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and and a lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What an amazing thing. Think of this. The Lord God, the I am who created the Milky Way galaxy just by singing a song, created the cosmos, also knows you intimately, knows every fear, knows every gene, knows everything about you. 
and loves you for Christ's sake. There's just one condition in that text on getting on his gaze and his blessing. It's humility. It's knowing your need. Being done with any delusion of self-sufficiency. And saying, Lord, I, I need you. Moses puts this before Israel as he warns them against idolatry in the promised land. He says, Deuteronomy 4, 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So it's always good to dwell on the imminence of God, but it's especially good in the wilderness season. And this is the second and final observation. Namely, God is always at work in the wilderness. God is always at work in the wilderness. And obviously I'm using that word metaphorically now. I mean seasons when you feel spiritually dry, seasons where you feel disoriented, seasons where you don't know where you're going. You know where you came from, but you don't know where you're going. Seasons where you have perhaps been bereft of a comfort that you thought was absolutely essential to your well-being, and then it's gone. But here's something that the maturing Christian must understand. God does special work in the wilderness. There are always diamonds in the wilderness that you would not have found anywhere else. Because it's easy to believe our faith is far stronger than it is when everything is great and when joy comes easy and the songs are glorious and comforts abound. But when they are removed and the color fades from the screen, that's when the truth of our heart is actually revealed and, and the caliber of our faith is actually exposed. And it's the place that true and deep sanctification then can actually take place as the Lord confronts you with the truth of who you are and then the truth of who he is. And this is exactly what Moses teaches to Israel as he reflects on their wilderness wanderings before they enter the promised land. Listen to this carefully. Deuteronomy 8, he says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you. And that he might test you to know what was really in your hearts whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know. And you might know the word manna literally means, what is it? <laughs> and so in the wilderness, the Lord feeds us, but it's ways that we didn't expect. He said, what is it? And notice how the wilderness litmus test works according to God through Moses here. Moses highlights it twice. He says, namely, the Lord was testing you to see if you'd still obey him when it was hard. Or if you'd use the wilderness as an excuse for sin. Which, if we're honest, is a whole lot easier to feel justified in sin when we're suffering. That harsh word, that gossip, that indulging your vice of choice, whatever it is. It's a whole lot easier to feel justified in that when things get really hard. But the Lord says, that's the very reason I brought you into the wilderness. To expose the truth of your heart. 
so that I could do the work right where it's needed. And notice this plays out with Hagar. She finds herself afflicted and in the wilderness, and she confesses when asked why she's fleeing. She, she confesses she's running away. And the Lord issues a command. He says, no, you must return and submit and obey. There's a blessing on the other side. And this was the moment of truth when her heart was truly being tested. And beautifully, Hagar does not double down on her recalcitrance. Rather, she submits and she obeys. And the wilderness has done its good work in Hagar. So, beloved, let us be instructed here. Wilderness seasons will come. They are built into the path of Christian maturity always. We must not allow ourselves to be hardened. Rather, we must allow our hearts to be humbled, knowing that our Lord is the Lord of the wilderness, and he is not just with us in it, he ordained it. And even more in a special way, he is the Lord who sees in the wilderness. Let us remember our Lord Jesus Christ who sympathizes with us perfectly because immediately after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he triumphed over every satanic temptation, which was essential preparation for the work his Father had for him to accomplish, namely going through the agony then of the cross, that he might win the salvation of his bride, the church. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says this beautifully. It says, Although Christ was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So yes, be comforted, saints. Jesus Christ endured the great wilderness so that we could enter into Emmanuel's land for all of eternity. And even now, like Hagar, because of Christ, the Lord's eyes remain fixed on us with love and watchful care as he guides us through every terrain that he has sovereignly ordained. Recently, the women went through the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and it is one of the great Christian books of all, of all time, both theologically rich but also very devotional. And of course, it is all about the knowledge of who God is. But before Packer launches out into the study, he gives a quick important and astounding that our knowledge of God, that we can know something true about God. And he says this, and it's an extended quote, but I'm going to read all of it because it has perhaps been the most important quote for me personally outside of the Bible in my Christian life. So I'll give Packer the final word, which is probably safe. He says this, but what matters supremely is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. And indeed, all my knowledge of God depends on his sustained initiative to know me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. 
And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted. And no moment, therefore, when his care could falter. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. And there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me, it's utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst thing about me. So that no new discovery could disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. So that is the gospel. This is what Christ, our glorious King, has won for us. The eternal gaze of the God who sees, shining upon us for eternity with affection and blessing. Our Lord and our God, we thank you.